Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thank you, Carl. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the road ahead for your money and whether a good part of the recovery is already baked into the market. We debate that with our investment committee today. Joining me for the hour, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, Bryn Talkington, managing partner at Requisite Capital Management. Brenda Vangelo is the CIO of Sandhill Global Advisors. Go to the wall. Take a look at where we are trading at noon today. NASDAQ, NASDAQ 100 hitting new highs today, 12,000. 516. S&P Dow, well, they're slightly in the red today. Russell's also green. So let's kick it around, uh, Bryn. I like to sort of set the state of play for stocks as we build into our discussion. You've got Dr. Burks, okay, on the task force. The COVID surge, she says, quote, the worst event this country will face coming this winter. Stocks have run a lot into November. The vaccine's getting closer day by day. Value's been outperforming lately. In fact, the value ETF is coming off its fifth positive week in a row. That's the first time since its five-week stretch ending the end of December of 2019. So my question to you to start things off, where do we go from here? I mean, it seems like the market wants to go higher. I mean, I think it's been incredible all year. It seems to definitely be picking up steam in November and the first part of December is that investors are leapfrogging past the litany of things, Scott, that you just highlighted, the slowing economy, the increasing cases, the political discord in Washington, the lack of fiscal stimulus, and leapfrogging over that and buying stocks in general. They're buying growth stocks, they're buying Momentum stocks are buying value stocks, airlines, energy, all of the above. And so I think it's a really good time to reflect is as investors, you got to be in it to win it. And I feel that by the time, you know, the vaccine's actually here, disseminated, and we get behind this, you know, who knows where the S&P will be. But it seems like it's going to be, you know, quite a bit higher than where it is today. Okay, why? So you you take that on. Bryn says the market wants to go higher. Does it want to go higher or... Does it want to pause? Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, frequent guest on this program, says, quote, recoveries create rotations. But with those rotations now fully in gear, it may be time for a near term pause. Anytime market has moved, this market's had. You wouldn't be surprised at a pause. However, the catalysts will keep coming. The way I look at it is, yes, the market has taken some of what's in front of us in terms of the recovery and put it and embedded it in where the performance has been. However, if you look at where the market was before COVID, the beginning of the year, we're not that much higher. But what's changed? What's changed is massive economic stimulus around the world that's going to drive an economic recovery that's synchronized globally. So under that score, as well as the potential for greater stimulus here for an infrastructure plan and for massive CapEx, which I keep harping on, we'll see the biggest CapEx cycle this this country has ever seen, would say that the market's got a lot of runway ahead of it. And I think that's going to dictate the direction. Yeah. Brenda, you know, I think it's it's an interesting debate to have. And you're starting to get some notes on the street now as to what's already baked in. I mean, the market went up a lot. In November, like Steve was saying, Lori Calvacina of RBC says their analysis suggests that the recovery has room to run from a fundamental perspective. I think everybody would agree with that. But she says it also suggests that a key risk for equities in 2021 is that the recovery is mostly baked in already. Do you agree with that? I think you could say that about certain sectors. So if we look at large cap technology, obviously it started leading this this, uh, recovery that we've seen, but it actually didn't keep up with the broader market. 
um, as a group in November uh, or for the quarter to date period, even though it's had a positive return. So um, I think what we could see and what we have absolutely seen is a catching up of other groups. And that's small cap is a great example. So just for this current quarter to date period, since October 1st, small cap is up 25%, which is phenomenal. But it's been a huge catch up. But still, if you look over a longer period of time, over three years, for example, the cumulative returns in small cap are still only about half of that of large cap. So there are other areas where the, I think there does continue to be an opportunity. We've been adding to more value-oriented groups and sectors um, just as part of a, our, our, our thesis that when we look at these more beaten-up cyclical groups, they're really going to be able to grow earnings exponentially in 2021, most likely, or the second half at least, and then 2022. And that historically has led to outperformance of those groups. So we think there continues to be opportunity, but I think it pays to be um, mindful of what has worked thus far and what might work as we look out over a longer period of time. So Joe, I, I think one of the most obvious questions that any investor would have, I think we're, you know, we're all wondering this ourselves, um, are you going to have a melt up into the end of the year? Is that likely? Do you get the Santa Claus rally, which isn't, by the way, just until the end of the year? Traditionally, it is into the first week or so into a new year or because you've maybe pulled some forward from the November record run in stocks. Do you miss out on this year's melt up? Great question. I think the answer to that can be found in where the 10 year Treasury is going to be priced, because I think, Scott, to Stephen's point, a lot of the gains have been pulled forward on the expectation that you're going to get a $908 billion stimulus package, on the expectation that not only do you have the introduction of three vaccines, but potentially on Thursday, the FDA approves the Pfizer vaccine for emergency usage. I think a lot of that is priced into the market. Where we go from here is predicated on capital coming out of where it's been hiding, which has been the fixed income market being delivered into the equity market. That propels it higher. Let's, let's cite that today, once again, the NASDAQ is higher. Nine consecutive days. That's the best performance since last year. So I understand. I understand the fascination with value. I get it. But overall, we're not losing exposure to that defensive technology growth-oriented uh, holding in the portfolio. Let me ask you this, Joe. What's not priced into the market? We think if we think, OK, optimism about a vaccine, maybe that's priced into the market. What's not priced in yet? I would suspect that on favorably, what's not priced into the market has a lot to do with the tariffs. And there's been commentary that the tariffs in 2021 will remain in place. I'm suspicious of that. I, for one, believe that we will see tariffs rolled back. I think eventually you'll see tariffs vacated. That is going to have a very powerful, positive impact on corporate margins and consumer spending. Let's understand the detrimental impact that tariffs were over the previous yeah, two and I mean, a half Biden, years. Yeah, but I mean, Biden, the president-elect, price into the market. President-elect's already out saying he's not going to get rid of them right away. I mean, they're going to have to sort of take stock in where we are. He's going to have to decide what kind of relationship he wants his administration to have with China. That may take some time to unfold. Understand that, respect that, but as you said, some time to unfold. That time might be quicker than the market expects it to be, and that might be a near-term reality that we begin to price in sooner in 2021 than we currently anticipate. Look, That's I, the surprise. I, I also, I think I hear more these days of people saying, I like some areas outside of the U.S., maybe for some of the same reasons that we're having the conversation, Steve, that we are right now. How much has been pull, pulled forward? How much is already in the market? And maybe there's more in the market here than there is elsewhere. I see you buying into South Korea through the EWY, which has good exposure through a whole variety of different sectors. Is that trying to play other parts of the world that may be further ahead of us? You know, that's exactly right, Scott. So I don't typically like to buy things at the highs. And if you look at the South Korean index, which is classified interestingly by MSCI as emerging market,
but FTSE classifies it, Russell, as a developed market. But what I like about it is that they handled COVID appropriately. So they, they quashed it, uh, as did China. And you see the growth in those economies is really hitting crescendo. South Korea is an industrial company. So by buying that, I get exposure to Samsung, which had a terrible year last year, a better year this year. I get exposure to LG Chemical, which is going to put the lithium into all the EVs. I get exposure essentially to 20% basic industry and cyclicals. So while well, keep my technology exposure, so that's why I like it. And to give credit where credit is due, the idea came out came from a, a certain uh, pro football team owner uh, in one of our conversations. But that's why I like that. So I was looking for the emerging markets. Uh, China's not working as well because of what we're seeing going on with the administration. And to Joe's point, I agree. At some point, relations, and this is the other catalyst, not just with China, but with Germany, with the rest of the EU, they'll normalize versus what we've seen under the current administration, which will be good for trade. Look at the surplus with China that was reported today. It's going in the wrong direction. So, uh, so yes, I think there are opportunities outside the U.S. to make money. Okay. So, Bryn, are, are we going to be having this conversation uh, eight to ten months from now saying that we should have gone more into areas outside the U.S.? Or do we think the U.S. is going to be the outperformer next year just out of hand because there's going to be so much pent-up demand here, both from a personal and corporate perspective, that that's going to drive this market higher? Yeah, I mean, you, you may be having the conversation. Um, I don't think we're going to be investing there. You know, I do think, you know, to, to Steve's point, you know, South Korea is interesting um, for, for all the points that Steve laid out. You also have, you know, Samsung, I believe, is 22 percent of that index, which could definitely give it a tailwind. But I think the one thing where you have to separate emerging markets versus developed economies, I think that Europe, Japan, which make up the lion's share of the, the EFA, are structurally flawed, structurally flawed economies. But if you do have the economy improving globally, you could get more commodity, more material-driven economies do well, which lend itself to emerging markets. But at the same time, those emerging markets aren't going to get the vaccine as quick as we are. So I, don't, I think that the U.S. is still where you want to be heavily overweight because technology is the epicenter of where growth is, and that is in the USA. And so I think if you want to buy secular growth names, you're going to have to stay in the U.S. If you want to take, you know, buy commodities or materials, I think emerging markets could be interesting. But I think it may be more of a back half of 2021 than a front half. I don't know, Brenda. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't parts of Asia outperform the U.S., whether it's Korea or, or China? For all of the reasons that, that Steve and, and Joe just said, if, if you have countries that they dealt better with the, the, the virus, they just did. They're back on the road to recovery faster than we are. They just are. And if you yeah, have I a president-elect who becomes president and says, I don't want any more tariffs on China, isn't that going to be beneficial to the Chinese economy? Isn't that market going to do potentially better than the United States? I think it certainly could, and if nothing else, it'll certainly improve sentiment about investing in China. But I think even if we look at, you know, where we can invest dollars in the world and where there's innovation happening, there is a ton of innovation happening in, in Asia and in China in particular. So I think that's an area and a market that just shouldn't be ignored. So we have uh, currently have an overweight in our allocation to emerging markets, which is really heavily dominated by China. We continue to think that that's an interesting part of the world to invest in um, and uh, have been allocating dollars there. Everybody's looking for value wherever they can find it. Our headline guest today, he's a big believer in the value trade and for good reason. His portfolio was up 17 and percent in November through a highly concentrated strategy. Andrew Wellington is the co-founder and CIO of Lyrical Asset Management, joins us now. First time we've seen you and it's been at least a year, it feels like. I hope you've been well. <laughs> Yeah, good to see you again, too, Scott. Yeah, maybe it's been a couple of years. So this strategy of yours, I say concentrated. <laughs> That's an understatement. OK, if I look at how uh, you do things, you've made seven trades this year. You normally do five in a year. In 12 years, you've literally made a total of 60 trades. Yeah, well, you're not going to beat the market by looking by the market. Uh, so we take a best ideas approach. 
And we still have 30 stocks in the portfolio. And if you look at the academic research on diversification, if you own 30 different stocks in a portfolio, you're getting almost all the benefits of diversification you would get from a much larger portfolio of 100 or more stocks. You, you're a value investor, obviously. This rotation that we've seen, is value now getting its moment in the sun or is it going to be fleeting? Yeah, I guess that's, that's the big question. And a lot of it depends on what you're calling value. And with our clients, we've been making this important distinction between value stocks and value indices. The value indices have been just absolutely terrible. They've been underperforming for 14 years. But value stocks have actually done far better than that. And the big difference is, you would, you know, when we talk about value stocks, we're talking about generally the cheapest 20% of the market. And you'd think the S&P 500 value index would be something like that, say the 100 cheapest stocks in the S&P 500. Well, those 100 cheapest stocks are in the S&P 500 value, but so are about 300 more stocks. There's almost 400 stocks in the S&P 500 value index. That's nearly 80% of the stocks in the S&P 500. So you don't really get value stock returns from the value stock index. If you look at how value stocks have done, they did great coming out of the financial crisis. They had significant outperformance for nine years from 09 through 17. Uh, they beat the S&P 500 cumulatively by 175 percentage points. Now, 18 and 19, and for three weeks this year, they were definitely out of favor. Um, but value stocks have been working since mid-March. And uh, it's only recently that the value index has started to work. OK, so I want to stay on this theme before we get into some actual stock picks and things that you specifically like for the very reason that one of the members of my investment committee just bought the U.S. value ETF recently. I want Brenda to tell you why she did that and if that plays into your same sort of stay away from those strategies and if not, why? Brenda, the floor is yours. Sure. So this ETF is an S&P 900 value, which has a lot more exposure uh, to a broader range of market caps within the, the traditional value um, as defined by indices uh, would have it. Um, so we did add this position. We typically structure our portfolios with some active component and then coupled with passive component because so often when we do see a big shift um, in leadership like we expect we could see um, and have started to see more recently that it's a lot of the stocks that active managers don't necessarily want to own that end up participating in uh, much of that rally. So we pair uh, both active and passive together. Uh, but our view is we would agree with the S&P 500 value. It's a little too concentrated for us, especially in bigger names like Berkshire Hathaway. But when we looked to, to broaden the exposure, we chose the 900 value. Okay. Professor, yes. pr Professor Wellington, what do you think of, of this, this purchase? I, I like it in theory. Um, in practice, some of what you're hoping to achieve, I'm afraid, may not happen. You know, the S&P 900 value, while I think better than the 500 value, it's still a cap-weighted benchmark. And so it's almost the exact same as the S&P 500 value. And I think if you were to run a chart of one versus the other, you're not going to see a lot of gap between the two performance lines. Um, the cap weighting still is going to put almost all that in index in the S&P 500 value names and very little in those incremental 400 names. Um, and then again, if we just look at the history, and I don't mean to pick on S&P, all the large cap value indices have this issue. Um, it's just how they're constructed. Um, but whether we, you know, we, you could have made the perfect call and said, you know what, on March 18th of 2020, this has gone on too far. Low PE stocks have sold off, and I'm going to go all into value. And if you bought the value index, like the S&P, you've actually underperformed since then by 12 percentage points. But if you just bought, say, the cheapest 200 stocks out of the largest 1,000, um, you've actually outperformed by 27 percentage points. So you could have made the right call, but if you did it with the wrong instrument, like these large-cap value indices, you didn't get the results you hoped to achieve. Mm. That's interesting. So, again... Because you run such a concentrated portfolio and you are way more selective, I think it's fair to say, than, than perhaps the average investor, what sort of screens do you use to find the stocks you like the best? 
Yeah, so we look at something like the lowest PE stocks. We have a slightly more sophisticated approach, which is not to just look at next year's earnings or the year after that. We look at five-year forward earnings. So we can incorporate elements of growth as well. And when we do that and we look at the cheapest stocks, our first reaction to looking at that list is, my God, what a pile of junk. Um, you never want to look at the components of any value index. You're not going to be happy with what you see. Most cheap stocks are cheap for a reason. But if you sift through them carefully, what you find is buried in this big pile of junk are a bunch of gems. And that's what our approach is. We try to sift through all that junk, find the gems. There are good businesses that are cheap out there. There's actually cheap companies out there who not only didn't see their earnings killed by the pandemic, their earnings have actually come out to be better than expected this year in spite of the pandemic. And yet they trade at multiples less than half of what the market's trading at. And so there, there's not a lot of gems. Most of it is junk, but there's enough gems out there. We couldn't build a 50 stock portfolio or a hundred stock portfolio, but we can build a 30 something stock portfolio out of just these gems. Okay. Let, let's talk about some of those. So we've, we've taught our viewers, I hope a little bit about, you know, how to look for these gems. Let's talk about exactly what you found. We've got, I want to get through three names if we can. Okay. Ameriprise Financials. That's one on your list. Please tell me why that fits into this category. Yeah, you know, Scott, we don't love banks, but we do own a bunch of other financial services companies. Ameriprise is in asset management and wealth management. It's not a credit risk or an interest rate risk kind of business. It's got a great history of long-term earnings growth. They've grown their earnings over the last economic cycle at something like 13%. The S&P 500 hasn't even grown at 5% over that period of time. So you have almost three times the growth, and yet it trades at half the price. Uh, it's, it's around 10, 10 and a half times earnings today, I believe, and the market's up around 24. And so here's a great example of a gem. This is a good company. You're not giving up growth. It's got good growth. Uh, it's a nice capital light, high return on capital business, lots of cash flow, and you can get it at a really discounted price. This is not the kind of crappy company you'd expect to get at less than half the market multiple. Okay. So tell me about Whirlpool, which is number two. Yeah, Whirlpool, you know, Whirlpool uh, business took a big hit after the housing crisis. But even with all that, if you look over the last economic cycle, going back before the housing crisis, they've still grown their earnings at 7% a year, which is, again, uh, a bit better than the S&P 500's 4.8. So it's had good growth. And this is a stock that actually Ameriprise, too, they both sold off more than 40% at the bottom of this year. Um, and yet Whirlpool's earnings in 2020 are actually coming out ahead of where they were expected to be at the beginning of the year. They have positive revisions. This is a really good company that keeps getting better. They're controlling their costs. They're expanding their margins. And as people have been stuck in their homes for the last nine months, they're spending money on their homes, which includes upgrading their appliances. I'm also wondering about a new administration and tariffs and things like that. You know, tariffs did not have a, a great effect on, uh, or I say a positive effect on, on Whirlpool. I mean, we, we saw, you know, prices go up in terms of their products. Tell me about Dell Technologies as we, as we continue to move. This is stock number three. Yeah, and for old time's sake, I think I talked about Dell the first time I was on your show eight years ago. Um, since then, it went private and then came public again. Dell's another example, a stock that had sold off more than uh, 40% at the lows. Their earnings are, again, coming in higher than expected because people are spending on PCs. They're buying more laptops this year, as well as they have um, an 80% ownership stake in a company called VMware. That's the leader in server virtualization. And if you subtract out the value of VMware, you're buying the rest of Dell's operations, the PC business and the enterprise technology business, at about one and a half times earnings. Um, and even we think that business is better than HP's, but if you gave it HP's multiples, they're up around seven or eight times. So that's more than a tripling of what that business should be worth. Um, and, you know, all these companies, they're up, they're all up over 100 percent since the bottom. And they all trade between 10, 11 times earnings, less than half the market multiple. And two of them, Whirlpool and Dell, have actually had earnings come through this year in spite of the pandemic higher than where the estimates were on January 1st. So these are good companies. They're not overly exposed to the economy. They're executing very well. 
And again, you could buy them at discounts of less than half the market multiple. Let me ask you lastly, um, it's not that we've discussed it or I even know if you own any of these things in energy. What does somebody like you make of where energy is now as some very well-respected technicians on, on Wall Street, uh, such as Jonathan Krinsky, who we have on the show quite often. I, I don't know if you follow him specifically or not, but uh, many people do. And he says that energy's turned the corner. Are you going through that sector and looking for stocks that fit into your screening? Energy is a tough sector for us to invest in because we like businesses to be analyzable. And the volatility of the commodity is, is a real challenge there. That said, we do own two stocks in the energy sector. Um, both of them, I believe, are best in class in what they do. One is EOG, which I think is the best in class operator in the U.S. shale. And the other is Suncor, which we think is the best in class operator in the Canadian oil sands. And I do think current oil prices are still well below what they need to be. We can see evidence of this in the complete collapse in drilling activity this year as oil prices have been too low to justify drilling. The thing about oil is we use it up. It, it, the more we consume, the, the more we need to replace it. And we're not replacing oil right now. So you're seeing we expect demand to rebound back to normal levels and supply isn't growing. And as supply and demand come back together, we think oil prices will continue to go up. And they need to be somewhere in the 60s, probably, to be high enough for companies to spend again and have supply meet demand. Mm, interesting. Okay. And so we like these two companies. They have low costs of operation. Um, EOG is profitable this year. And uh, they also have very healthy balance sheets to endure these difficult times that are going on in the oil sector. Yeah. I appreciate the time. It's good to see you again. You stay well. We'll talk to you again soon. See right, you soon. Bye-bye. Andrew Wellington of Lyrical joining us there. Straight ahead, an upgrade for Boeing today. Its shares are surging 50% in a month, and some of our experts own that stock. Maybe you do as well, so we'll debate it next in our call of the day. Plus, this year has proven to be work can be done from anywhere. As you know, anytime, any place, connectivity has proven critical for the success of any organization. In the next CNBC at Work Spotlight event, you can hear from business leaders prepared to propel into this new transformative era of work and innovation. You can learn more. Register now. CNBCevents.com slash workspotlight. We're back. Two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. I'm Dominic Chu, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says he may shut indoor dining at New York City restaurants if the hospitalization rate does not stabilize within the next five days. The U.S. putting sanctions on 14 more Chinese officials, this for their alleged role in moves against pro-democracy legislators in Hong Kong. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo joining the international condemnation of elections in Venezuela. Pompeo says they were, quote, a political farce, and the U.S. will continue to recognize interim president Juan Guaido as Venezuela's legitimate leader. And the 0-12 now, New York Jets have reportedly fired their defensive coordinator. It follows this last-minute play in yesterday's big loss to the Las Vegas Raiders. Greg Williams came under withering criticism for calling an all-out blitz that cost them and the team the first win of the season. The Jets are the only winless team left in the NFL this season. Scott, I know you are very well aware of this game, but Jets fans I know were secretly saying, maybe this gets us Trevor Lawrence. Back over to you. Secretly? I don't think there was a secret. I think it's very well in the open, Dom, too. I was trying to be nice, but yeah. that's, you know. No need. Thanks, Dom. <laughs> you got it. All right. The investment committee making moves today. Bryn, let's go through a couple of yours. Um, I did, I did uh, you know, a trade with Steve Weiss. You bought Taiwan Semi last week. 
Tell me about why. And I think Steve Weiss owned that. I think Pete owns that. Now, why, why are you in there now? Well, I, I bought it around 103 last week. So I think it's got a nice tailwind. You know, the reason I bought it is that it had been basing it out for the last few months. It had a good November like all other stocks. But I think with Apple's new M1 chip, which is a real game changer in the chip industry. You know, Taiwan Semiconductor makes the chips for Apple. And I think going into Christmas and the early next year, as Apple's, you know, PC sales increase, I think it'll be a good tailwind for, for, for Taiwan. And once again, the chart just looked really good. So it may be a shorter term trade, but I think it's got good tailwinds going into Christmas. Okay, good stuff. Joe Terranova, you sold Home Depot. Why? I did. I've owned Home Depot since the early part of May at around 220, and clearly post earnings for both Home Depot and Lowe's, uh, th there has just been an absence of uh, performance that correlates with the strong quarter. So I think there is some fatigue that is beginning to set in. I think Stephanie Link should be congratulated. She was way earlier in beginning to get out of Home Depot than I was, but the fatigue is setting in. It's represented in the poor price performance. And uh, certainly for both these stocks, I think it's in need of a pullback. And I think that's exactly what's happening right now. So I got out of that on last Thursday. You think the best of housing's behind us? It's a great question. Uh, I think certainly in terms of price itself, we are at the ceiling. Inventories remain incredibly low, very challenged. So lower price point houses, yes, there's going to be strong demand and turnover for that. But I think above a million dollars, that pricing has clearly hit the ceiling. And I do think that's going to impact housing and the secondary uh, type of investments you would make based on that. Okay. We mentioned uh, one of our calls of the day. Uh, it is Boeing upgraded today to a buy at UBS. The price target doubled to 300 from 150. Well, they cite travel restriction, relaxation, the max getting back in the air as one of the other catalysts as well. Uh, Brenda, you own it and you bought it in mid-November, maybe looking to some of these catalysts. That's right. I mean, we bought it and we started to see what we were calling green shoots sort of developing where the European Union um, had approved the 730 max, 737 max. We saw the air traffic was picking up domestically in China and it really recovered. Um, so we started to see the incremental news getting a little bit more positive or at least not getting any more negative and felt that that in itself would be a catalyst for the stock. But here we are, and we've just bought the stock three weeks ago, and it's up 40% since then. So we've mm. had this phenomenal move. I think this at this point, we do need to see some real more progress um, towards a recovery in order to really propel this stock much further. Although I'll say that this analyst price target is $300. The stock was at $300 earlier this year, pre-COVID. But as we know, you know, Boeing at that time was still facing a lot of problems with the 737 MAX. So um, it, it wasn't without issue at that point when it was able to achieve a $300 price point. Can you, I mean, this makes me think of a lot of different things. Can, can you help our viewers maybe understand both sort of fundamentally as a portfolio manager and emotionally mm -hmm. a stock up 40 percent in three weeks. How do you deal with that? It's enormous, but I'll say that, you know, this was a stock that was really down and out for a long time. Um, one of the reasons it gave us confidence in, in be stepping in, which I'll say we've not owned uh, Boeing in the last 10 years. <laughs> so we have not participated in Boeing in a very long time, but we felt that this is a duopoly. Uh, the company is going to be a going concern. It's a very important part of our economy um, that business would eventually come back. Um, so that's what gave us the confidence to step in. So I think it was underpriced at that point. But now here we are 40% higher. And yes, I, I do think that now is when the rubber starts to meet the road. And we do really need to see some fundamental uh, progress in terms of free cash flow really being the, the major uh, determinant of that. So we need to see that free cash flow is improving. Um, and um, we need to see you know, more visibility into what next year and the following year are going to bring in terms of restocking the backlog. Yeah. Interesting uh, and uh, great timing on, on your part for certain. Let, let's stay on the airline theme. Bring in Rahel Solomon. She has some more interesting calls today, starting with Southwest. Southwest. Hi, Scott. So Bernstein is upgrading Southwest to outperform. Price target here is $59 a share. So with the vaccine on the way, the firm sees travel beginning to recover in the back half of 2021 and the industry as a whole returning to cash flow break even next year. Elsewhere, Piper Sandler raises the price target for Lyft to $61 Noting that Lyft is getting better at monetizing vehicle mileage 
and that both continued cost controls and the current regulatory environment support EBITDA upside. Moffitt Nathanson is initiating coverage of American Express with a buy rating and a $155 price target. The firm, Scott, sees plenty of growth in the company's three target markets, so that would be U.S. consumers, small and medium businesses, and also international. And finally, Seaport initiating coverage with a buy of Square, Visa, and MasterCard. So it's most bullish on Square and expects a strong quarter, especially during tax refund season. And then on Visa and MasterCard, Scott, Seaport sees them both as beneficiaries and the death in cash. I'm glad you ended there, Rahel. Thank you for that, because I wanted to go to you, Weiss, because you say, and I want to play off the uh, Amex call, too, you like Visa over Amex to begin with, but then, you know, Visa gets this initiation with a buy over at Seaport along with Square and MA. Yeah, so... American Express is more levered to the business cycle, and particularly small business cycle, and I just don't see that coming back as quickly. I could see it continuing to be under siege. So while it's cheaper than Visa, it's not all that much cheaper. I also like Visa and MasterCard because I don't know them, but they cherry to like because of digital pay. Square's too expensive, but I own Jumia, and Jumia pay is growing at 100% a year. So I've got that covered. So I just see no reason to step out and go to American Express when Visa is such a core position for me at this point and worry about the business cycle. Yeah. Bryn, um, do you own a does anybody own AXP? No one does. Right. I mean, Joe, I think you used to. Bryn, I think you like it. Correct. But nobody owns AXP. That's interesting to me. Why, Bryn? Well, I think it Well, You know, I came up the other day, I think, when Kevin O'Leary was talking about it. I think it's a really interesting play on the recovery, but I think a couple things have to happen. The, you have to get back on an airline. I'm on, the, I'm on an airplane every other week on Southwest Airlines. I have no problem flying. That being said, I run a company, I run a business, but you have to have big companies allowing their employees to start traveling and use those Amex cards again. So I agree with Steve that this is a business recovery play. I think you have to have the airlines start moving higher because you're actually getting real traction. But I really haven't heard of any of my friends that work at companies that their companies are going to let them travel anytime soon. So if I start hearing that, I would definitely be interested in American Express because I think that's a great entry point. But you need to see these companies letting people get on airplanes. And I think they think it's too much of a liability at this point. Yeah, it could take a while for biz travel to get back to where it was. That is for certain. We have a big week ahead for IPOs. Airbnb, DoorDasher on deck. We'll find out how to play it with ETFs coming up next. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The half is back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. A week for IPOs, a big week for IPOs with Airbnb and DoorDash going public, capping off a big year, not just for IPOs, but for their rival, special purpose acquisition vehicles or SPACs. 
as they are known. Our guests today, two of the best in the business and foremost experts on this subject, Kathleen Smith from Renaissance Capital, who runs the Renaissance Capital IPO ETF, a basket of the most recent 50 IPOs, Paul Delacquilla, he's Defiance Next Generation SPAC ETF head. Kathleen, it's remarkable to me that IPOs have had such a stellar year with all the COVID chaos. 194 IPO deals raised $67 billion, the best since 2014. What do you attribute the stellar performance to this year for IPOs? Why have they done so well? Well, it may have been one of the worst years for COVID, but it has been, as you mentioned, one of the best years for IPOs. Certainly, it's helped by low interest rates. And then also the IPO market works on returns, and returns are the fuel that drive the issuance engine. The returns have been very good. As you mentioned, our ETF is an example. The returns for investors and the market have been quite good. So we've just seen a rush of IPOs, an avalanche, uh, more billion-dollar IPOs this year than we've seen in any other year in history. And we're going to see the biggest ever Airbnb DoorDash come out this week. And a handful of other billion-dollar IPOs still set to price before the year's over. Yeah, and uh, historic highs for your IPO ETF. Congrats on that. Paul, SPACs raised the same amount of money as IPOs. It's remarkable. 200 SPACs raised about $64 billion. Why did SPACs take off this year? They hadn't in the past. And what are the prospects for 2021? It's a great question, Bob. And, and first and foremost, it's really about the quality of the companies that are actually choosing to go via SPAC. And if you look at it, something like DraftKings earlier this year, Virgin Galactic last year, and even last week, Luminar Technologies, these are clearly companies that investors have interest in owning. Secondarily, uh, it's about the quality of the management teams that are actually sponsoring SPACs. So Bill Ackman is clearly the $4 billion gorilla that everyone talks about, but you're also seeing traditional private equity leaders really step into the space like TPG, Goldman Sachs, uh, and that's showing a very strong commitment for 2021 for future growth. All right, Kathleen, very quickly, what are the hot IPOs coming in 21? Just give us three or four that may happen in the next few months. Well, we think some of the biggest include Stripe, mobile payments company, that company is a $36 billion private valuation that is targeting a $70-plus billion valuation recently. Alphabet's autonomous vehicle company, Waymo, a $30 billion private valuation. Instacart and grocery delivery got a $17 billion, and we think there's a good chance that Elon Musk's SpaceX will tap the IPO market, and that currently has a private valuation of $46 billion. Okay, thank you very much, Kathleen and Paul. And remember to catch ETF Edge today, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Kathleen and Paul will delve deeper into the SPAC and IPO market for 2021, along with Dave Nodick from ETF Trends. That's etfedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, we appreciate it very much. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Joining us next, a member of CNBC's Financial Wellness Council, Akbar Bajabia-Milla is with us. Looking forward to that. We're back in just 30 seconds. All right, welcome back. Joe Ternova, coming back to you. I want to talk some DocuSign. You bought it, but with a catch. Well, I've owned DocuSign for the better part of the last eight months. I bought it at 92 on April 1st. Earnings were released. We had a very uh, thoughtful conversation last week. You and I and Jim Cranmer was included in that as well. But the earnings for DocuSign came out. They were clearly very strong, but you have to pay attention to price. And price is not working consistent with those earnings. So risk management, Scott, becomes your focus. You need to place a stop, and that's exactly what I will do. I will place a stop below Thursday's low at $215 to exit the position to tell me where my point of reference is to identify if potentially this stock is experiencing fatigue. I don't know that it is, but I think it's important to, from a risk management perspective to have that protection in place. Okay, no, I appreciate that. I, I insinuated that you bought it recently when, in fact, as you clarified there, you've owned it for uh, some eight months. Thank you for that, Joe Cherenova. 
All right, CNBC has partnered with Acorns, the saving and investing app on a financial wellness and education initiative called Invest in You, Ready, Set, Grow. Well, tomorrow, CNBC, Acorns, and Junior Achievement are partnering to bring teens from across the country together with a panel of experts for a live virtual forum to discuss economic disparity in America. One of those experts, Akbar Bajabia Miller, he is the co-host of American Ninja Warrior and American Ninja Warrior Junior. He joins us now. It's good to see you again. I hope you've been well. Yes, I've been doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Thank you very much. A big event and important one for certain tomorrow. What do you hope to get out of it? Well, I just hope to get a conversation going. I think that's probably the biggest move uh, in this whole partnership is being able to get to the youth, especially at a young age. I think, you know, especially when you think about, you know, American and finances, you think this is probably the age group as we're opening this discussion up to 13 to 17 years. These are going to be our teenagers that we're going to be having these conversations, but we're trying to end this cycle uh, of misinformation as it comes to finances. And so we're trying to make sure that we, you know, narrow that gap um, when it comes to the racial, ethnic, and gender barriers that a lot of these, um, you know, Americans are facing, especially in, in certain communities. We're proud to be a part of it. And it's so important. You don't realize that at that age that you just talked about, those folks are talking a lot about it themselves. That these numbers don't lie. 61% uh, in a survey believe people in our society are paid less based on race, ethnicity, or gender. 69% believe people have a harder time getting financial support to start a business based on race, ethnicity, or gender. And 45% Akbar of respondents felt that, quote, education is the top way to address a lack of economic opportunity, followed by changing the laws, business reforms, and reparations. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think that's great. I think that's good information. I think the data, what we do with that data is, you know, promote the conversation and then have the education. Because I think once you have the education around financials, that's when real change starts to happen because you start to understand how some of the systemic laws, I think I, think, I go back to it, I think a lot of people are familiar with the redlining and just thinking, if you know back then, if you go back, we, you know, rewind back to those, that time period, and if you knew about redlining and how it was systemically built into the laws and into the contracts, then you would be able to undo that. And I think now, fast forwarding to where we are in present time, I think the education that we're trying to give to these teenagers is we have a full panel um, and we have, I mean, experts from all over who are going to be diving in. So these kids can just ask whatever questions they want. Um, they're free to have the floor and really to be able to explore how they can make a change, because ultimately we're investing in their future. We talk a lot about income inequality, but what we don't talk probably enough about is opportunity inequality, which if you can help solve that, you help solve the greater issue itself. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I, I think about my, my upbringing and I think about, you know, some of the opportunities that weren't afforded to me. Uh, I think about some of the opportunities that weren't afforded. For example, I think about the education um, disparity. And I think growing up in my neighborhood, I wasn't able to take my books home. That's just a small portion. Well, my counterparts down the road, down the street, they were able to have that access. They had the access to, you know, the best tutors and they had STEM education and they had all these different things that weren't available to me in my neighborhood. Now we're starting to talk about opportunities and those type of opportunities, even being within close proximity allows you to close proximity to people who have influence, close proximity to those who have those opportunities. I think just being in those in that same space allows you to be to be able to capitalize on it. And I think that's ultimately what we're trying to do is erase that divide so we have more opportunities and more equality. Glad you're a partner of ours. Uh, in this important effort. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. You be well. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Akbar Bajabiamil. If you'd like to join him and the rest of our panelists tomorrow at the virtual summit for a more equitable and just tomorrow, please go to cnbc.com slash JA Summit to register and you can watch the event online. Coming up, natural gas prices. They're slipping. How the futures traders are playing it next on The Half. Let's do our futures outlook now. Natural gas getting crushed today. Lowest levels now since October. Jeff Kilberg of KKM Financial joins us now with the trade. So where do you think it's going from here? It's down 6% today. 
Well, Judge, we've seen panic selling absolutely 32% lower than the beginning of November, just 20% lower in the last three trading sessions. But you are seeing a shift in forecast. The old weatherman was wrong. They we're getting called off sides on the weatherman. We're seeing warmer trends, broadly warmer than usual. So when you see open interest above average, when you see longs get caught like this, that's where you see panic selling. But panic selling creates opportunity, Judge. So I want to be a buyer here. There's some old port at $2.37. So I want to be a buyer at 237 with the target, up 40 cents to 277. A little back and fill opportunity here, but I'm being mindful of a very tight stop, just 10 cents lower at 227 cents, Judge. So I'm risking $1,000 to make $4,000 and capitalize on this panic selling. ND and Bama, is that how it's going to end up? Yes, sir. Go Irish. I think this is our year, Judge. This <laughs> is our year, baby. Yeah, I've been hearing that a lot from the Notre Dame folks over the last decade. We'll see. Jeff Kilberg, you thank you. All right, coming up, we'll do final trades. All right, gang, let's do final trades. Brenda, you're up first today. So CBS Health, this is a company that's often overlooked, trading at just 10 times earnings, really is evolving with the rollout of health hubs, which should help actually lower health care costs. And on top of that, they're going to be participating in the overall rollout of vaccine. So we like it here. Yeah, I was thinking it was uh, probably some uh, vaccine play somehow. Bryn, what do you have for us? Um, ARKK, which is ARK Invests. We are big fans of Kathy Wood and team. And if you're looking for a portfolio concentrated around 35 names, um, our Kathy Wood and team are doing the heavy lifting of finding um, disruptive companies um, across sectors. And we think it's a good long-term long -term investment. So you think Tesla's going to $8 million a share or whatever they do over there too? Maybe 8,000. I don't know about 8 million. <laughs> you don't own Tesla though, do you? Seriously, though, you don't. I own a big position at Arc. I have a huge position at Arc, which is the number one holding. Of yes, Tesla. I know that. It's that's been around 15 percent. That's so why I ask. It's like a proxy for Tesla. All right, thank you for that, Joe. What do you got? Stephen Weiss is going to like this. A little buy high, sell high, or Teradyne, mid cap name, performing very well. Okay, Steve Weiss. First of all, thank you, Joe. Moderna. Look, the stock's having a good day today. It's going to have a great week. I think 200 is a path of least resistance right now okay. when you get their approval for the EUA as well. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.